Come on down here. While they're coming, you guys can turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2 this morning. And uh, if you are where you can and you are able, would you please stand this morning as we honor the reading of God's Word as uh, Slade Knowlton reads to us out of 1 Samuel chapter 2. pray. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for your word. Uh, Father, uh, I pray today that we see that, that no matter how dark uh, the night gets around us, you're always working in uh, a thousand ways that we can never see uh, or never fathom, and that, Father, we always have hope. Uh, Father, thank you that, that although earthly priests, earthly pastors, earthly um, people in general will let us down, we have someone better. Uh, we have a priest who now stands before God, who intercedes for us, uh, who will always stand to intercede for us, and that is Jesus Christ. So I pray today, as every week, that this text would point us to Jesus, and that we would make much of Jesus today, and that if someone is in here that does not know um, Jesus, that today they would be saved, and that the rest of us would be comforted uh, in Jesus and in your gospel, and it's in your name we pray, amen. All right, you guys can be seated. So last week we, we looked at Hannah's prayer uh, and, and, and we looked at, at her prayer of just thanksgiving and her giving thanks and rejoicing uh, and crying out to God, thanking him for what only he could do. He was, she was barren, but, but he's given her a son. But, but beyond that, what we said was that, that, that um, Hannah understands that, that her situation was more, uh, wasn't just about her, but it was about uh, the nation of Israel as, as a whole. That, that, that Israel's barrenness was about to, to, to be given life. That he's going to do the same thing that he did for her, for his people, very, very soon. And the heart of her prayer showed us God's attitude towards pride. That God hates pride. God, God hates a spirit that says, I did this. That this was all me. And that we have to be reminded at all times that all that we have and all that we accomplish is a gracious gift from the hand of God, especially our salvation. Our salvation doesn't come through our merit, but through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so ultimately what we see is that, that Hannah points us to another woman. It points us to another miraculous birth and another prayer by Mary, the mother of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in her prayer, she echoes the same things that Hannah did, that salvation alone belongs to the Lord. And it's the humble who know that they bring nothing to the table that are saved. 
It's a beautiful prayer. Now, today I, I wanted to, to open by, by saying that, that I think in, in our country in, in particular, that there's always been this certain cynicism towards leadership, amen? In the last two years, I think that's been amplified. So, so many of us just now look at, at our elected leaders, doctors, business leaders, uh, and, and for me, even pastors and theologians, and I, I've got all this cynicism towards them. There's this lack of trust in them. And most of us, I think, sadly, have just kind of come to, to expect that, that our leaders are going to let us down. Like, oh, another one. Here they come. They're just going to let us down like the last one. And honestly, we, we take delight in being proven right about our expectations. I mean, the, the media helps us with that, don't they? My pastor used to always joke that America's favorite pastime is just to build people up, just to tear them back down. In his song, Dirty Laundry, the great theologian, Don Henley. Some of y'all remember that song, 80s, like 89? This is what he said. He said, I make my living off the evening news. Just give me something I can use. People love it when you lose. They love dirty laundry. And then the chorus, if you remember, it says, kick them when they're up, kick them when they're down. Kick them when they're up, kick them when they're down. That's kind of how we see things. Pretty accurate song. We have so much cynicism towards our leaders. And listen, it has obvious validity. And sadly, we've developed very low expectations for our leaders. And not just political leaders. Every day, we hear of situations that continue to rise in our churches among pastors. If you remember us Baptists for years, we used to look down on the Catholics and make fun of them for all their scandals in their church till our own came home to roost a couple years ago. And now our, our own denomination is being torn apart by the fact that we have ourselves covered up and hidden sex abuse, uh, bad pastors, and things like that for years. Uh, we see pastors getting extremely wealthy off their ministries. We see pastors abuse their position and bully and intimidate church members. But yet we expect a great deal from our leaders. The paradox, as John Woodhouse says, is that we're cynical towards them because we think that they could do so much better. It's contradictory, but let's be honest, consistency has never been a very strong human trait. So, so what happens is, and I've seen this happen, you've seen it happen, is that we get really, really excited about a change in leadership. So whether it's in the national government, local government, uh, whether it's at the, the church, right, we're getting rid of that pastor, we're going to bring in a new one. Uh, whether it's at the school, on the school board, we're on a coaching staff, and we love it. We love the new change. Those old guys were terrible. And we love the new guys until they make a decision we disagree with, and then all of a sudden the new guy's got to go because the old guy was so much better. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and we have to be very, very careful with that, don't we? I mean, I think even as a church, I, I, would, I would caution all of us in this room that are members of this church, be careful with your attitude right now. I mean, we're, we're getting ready to go into a building project. You're not going to agree with everything. That's okay. Breathe, rub your earlobes, do whatever you got to do, and calm down because you're not. You're, you're not. But then we also just become polarized over our leaders, don't we? We tend to see one as unable to do anything right and another unable to make any mistake at all. And that happens in the church. You remember the Corinthian church? What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1.12? He says, what I mean is each of you say, well, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. Or I, I follow Cephas. And then you remember the really, really religious people? They were like, oh, I don't follow man. I follow Christ, right? I'm better than all you guys. 
And so here's this church fighting over, oh, I like the last pastor. No, I like the new pastor. Well, remember that really flashy guy, Apollos? I really liked him. Remind me of Byron. I like him a lot. All right? There's confusion. We expect so little, but we also expect so much of our leaders. Again, John Woodhouse tells us this. Listen to this. He says, in the confusion, one thing is common and very clear once you see it. God does not feature in the attitudes of most people towards leadership. As you think with cynicism or expectation about leaders who affect your life, what place does God have in your thinking? What difference does God have in your thinking make to, the, to, make to either your cynicism or your expectations? That stings a little bit. Because we expect so much, but very rarely do any of us go, well, God, how would you have me behave towards this leader? God, how would you have me behave towards this person? I've used this example for years, and it bothers you. I don't care. Anytime we have a Republican president, somebody will get up and pray in church and be like, oh, God, bless our president. Watch over him. Help him make good decisions. Then the leadership changed. Never once do you hear somebody pray for the new guy, do you? I ain't heard none of y'all pray for Biden. I'm just saying. I'm not saying I agree with him. I'm just saying. You praying for him? Probably not, but you prayed for the last guy a whole lot. God doesn't factor into our decisions or in our thinking when it comes to leadership. So see, in our text today, what we see is that, listen, there was a reason for cynicism in Israel. There really was. And amid the corruption and amid the cynicism, we see God still working in the background to bring hope to his people. So, so look with me, if you will. Look at verse uh, 12, or, or I tell you what, look at verse 11. Let's start in verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. All right, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give me meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I'll take it by force. Thus the sin of the young man was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year. Then she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children. And by this, the woman, by this woman, for the petition she asked of the Lord, so then they would return to their home. And indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord." So Hannah's prayer concluded where she speaks of the mighty, the arrogant, and those who choose to contend with Yahweh. And then you open up verse 12 and there they are, boy. There's those guys that choose to contend with Yahweh. It says that Eli's sons were worthless men. The Hebrew, and maybe your translation says that they were scoundrels. I like that word. We need to use it more. I think that's a scoundrel. They're scoundrels. The, the word is, is Belial. In chapter 1, verse 16, you remember Hannah's praying. And Eli thinks she's drunk. And Eli says, hey, you're a worthless woman. And, and what she's saying is that you're a daughter of Belial. And she says, I'm not a worthless woman. And so you see the contrast there. 
She's not a worthless woman. She's not a daughter of Belial. But yet Eli, who thought she was, his own sons are actually sons of Belial. They're actually worthless men. Belial is associated with death, with wickedness, rebellion. Uh, Later on, it'll become a name for the prince of evil. Uh, In the New Testament, Paul speaks of of opposite extremes in 2 Corinthians 6.15. And he says, what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Well, why are they that way then? Why, why are they worthless men? Why are they scoundrels? Look at the next part of the verse. What does it say? They did not know the Lord. I mean, here you have two guys, two ministers standing before God representing the people, but they don't know him. They have no relationship with him at all. Hannah said in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 3, for the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. So Eli's sons may not have known the Lord, but listen, the Lord's not going to fail to know Eli's sons. And, and here's the reality of this verse. It probably doesn't shock any of you in this room, does it? Like, like you probably didn't read that and go, oh, these pastors, they don't know the Lord. Oh, well. We, we were hanging out in, in, in a meeting the other night, and we made some joke about some, some pastor running off with the secretary or something like that, right? You know, and we all just kind of laughed. But, but it, it was, it's, it's funny because we've become so accustomed to that, haven't we? I mean, just go Google, like, anything you want right now. Like, go Google Hillsong. Go down that rabbit hole for a little while and see what's happening there in that mess and all the scandals and all the things that are taking place. Like, like this just seems to be a commonplace thing in our, 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 our world is that we see ministers fail. And we just kind of shrug our shoulders and go, ah, you know, hey, what's the big deal? It happens every day. This is just kind of 21st century. But, but chapter, but verse 12, it, it really should stun you. Like the the original readers would have read that and been in shock because here's Israel. Here's God's chosen people. They were meant to be a kingdom of priests. They were meant to be a holy nation. Their lives were meant to teach people about God's law, to offer sacrifices for the atonement of sins. Yet, their leaders, the people they trusted to do all of that, the Bible says are worthless men. They were sons of Belial. They did not know the Lord. And then you go on there and you, you can read of their crimes. And, and I won't go into detail on all this. If you want to go home tonight, you can read Leviticus chapter 7. You can read Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18. And, and that's where you find the instructions for this particular sacrifice. But the short version is this, is that out of all the sacrifices that the children of Israel were to make, and there, there's a whole bunch of them, there was one and only one that was to be eaten. And, and this sacrifice is what they called the peace offering. And so, so much of what God does is, is around a meal, isn't it? It's around a table. We're going to go to the table here in a minute. We're going to remind ourselves that there's peace between us and God because of what Jesus has done. And that's what the peace offering was for. And so the father of a family would bring his offering to the tent, and then the priest would meet him there. He would lay hands on the animal. He would confess the sins of, of himself and of his family, and then they would slaughter the animal, and they would make atonement for sins. It was a way of saying, hey, there's now peace between my family and God because blood has been shed for our sins. And so you you would do that and you would kill the animal. Now, when you were done with that, what they would do is they would take a portion of that, usually the kidney and the lobe of the liver, and along with the fat that was on the innards, and then they would offer that up to the Lord in fire. They would burn it. It was supposed to be a sweet-smelling offering to the Lord. And then the priest would receive a designated portion of the offering. And so in the Bible, it says that usually the breast and the right leg went to the priest. So, so the, the, the best illustration I had 
would be like at, at this church and a lot of churches our size, we provide parsonages for a pastor. So it's not my house, I get to live in the house, it's just your way of taking care of me. This was the same thing. This was God's way of taking care of his ministers. So instead of them having to go out and buy food, God said, hey, I've got a way for you to be able to eat and survive and to feed your family. And so each sacrifice, hey, this is your portion, all right? Now, that's, that's what would happen. Uh, and then you would have uh, uh, usually one to two days as a family to go home after the animal was presented to the priest and eat the meal and eat it with your family. So again, you're reminding your family, hey, we have peace now between us and God because blood has been shed. That's what they did. Eli's sons would then send their servants into the house of these people. So, so you're a dad, you've just sacrificed, you're at home, you're preparing the meal with your family, and all of a sudden one of Eli's servants would come in with a three-pronged fork, and he kind of acted like a leg breaker for the mob. I, I, was, I was laughing because I was thinking of Rocky yesterday, you remember that scene in Rocky, where he's going to collect the money, and he's like, hey, yo, you want to dance, you got to pay the band, right? You remember that? And he tells him, you want to you borrow, you got to pay the man, and you know, the guy's freaking out, and he's like, hey, I ain't emotionally involved here, and that's, that's kind of what he was doing. It's, it's like these guys would come in and be like, hey, I'm not emotionally involved. I'm just going to take it because they told me to. So they stick the fork in there, and whatever they pulled out, they would just take home with them. They, they would just take it back. And, and remember, the Jews are boiling meat because they couldn't eat blood or fat. But then it gets a little bit more scandalous because they're coming in there, and they're just taking whatever they want, and, which is the whole can't eat fat. Man, does that, that bothers me. That's usually the good part. Like, think about like a brisket. You want that fat, man. Get in there. It makes it real good. And so I think Eli's sons were onto something here a little bit, but it's wrong. But then they would just go and they would take the raw meat. Well, even if these guys would say, hey, wait, remember what the law of God said? Eli's sons were like, ah, don't listen to him. Take it by force. And so then they would stick the fork, you know, under their chin or whatever and be like, hey, give me your food. And so they would take it and they would leave. So what they were doing is they were stealing from God. They were depriving the people of God of their portion of the peace offering. So what that looks like would be in here in a moment. If, if we go and we take communion and you're there, you're remembering that blood was shed so that, that you could have peace between you and God. And I walk up to you and I just slap the cup out of your hand. Like, what are you doing? That's mine. Or I take the bread from you. Like, I'm taking away from you. I, I'm saying, hey, you, you don't have a right to remember that. And, and this is, in a sense, what they were doing to the people. They were stealing from God. They were stealing from the people. It was wrong. As a priest, they were supposed to represent God before the people, not take from people. And here they are taking. Uh, in verse 13, you can underline that word. It says custom. That word in Hebrew has the basic meaning of, of justice. So what's happening here is that the young priests at Shiloh were bringing their own version of justice. And I think that's important to remember in our climate is that remember, God cares about justice, and he cares about justice deeply. So, so you got to be careful, because the minute we say justice in this climate, they're like, ah, he's woke. He said justice. No, no, no. I said God's justice. But when we apply our own concepts to justice or human ideas to justice like these men are doing, then all of a sudden now justice has become corrupted. And that's what's taking place here. And so it says that as a result of doing all these things, that they treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So once again, do you see the contrast here between these men and Hannah? Hannah says there is none holy like the Lord. She feared the Lord. She, she stood in reverence and awe of the Lord. And yet these men who were supposed to be priests, they did not fear God at all. 
And so verse 22 tells us, now Eli was very old. He kept hearing all that his sons were doing in Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent to meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord that put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and favor with the Lord and also with man. So most scholars believe Eli's pushing 100 at this point. He's very old. And so probably because of his great age, there's a good chance he really wasn't in touch with what was happening at the temple. Um, at 100, you know, homeboy's probably going to bed at 4, waking up at 5. Uh, you know, falling asleep, watching Matlock or something. That's, that's what he's doing. Um, and so he probably wasn't engaged as he used to be in the day-to-day. There are some who believe that, that he participated in their sins uh, uh, by eating the meat that, that was stolen. And, and not outright. But it's just the fact that he probably was eating it going, hey man, where, where did you get that sirloin at? That ribeye. Like we're supposed to just get the, the breast and the right leg, but, you, you know, but it's good, right? And so he kind of just turned a blind eye to what they were doing. And, and their, 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 their justification for that is in chapter four where we learned that, that Eli was, was fairly large, that he was overweight. So, so in one sense, he was probably acknowledging with his mouth that what they were doing was wrong, while at the same time, he, he may have been turning a blind eye and taking part in it, right? But, but whatever it is, um, it seems that on top of taking the Lord's offering, we learn of another sin, that these men now, his sons, were sleeping with the ladies who served in the tent of meeting. So, so these women served at the door when you came in. They were basically there just to make sure the tent looked nice, to take care of things, to kind of be administrators and to help out. And these men have now taken this and they, they've turned the Lord's house, his tabernacle, into a brothel. Again, supposed to shock us. It doesn't really. We're like, oh yeah, another pastor and secretary. I mean, it just, we, we hear these stories all the time. It's become too common in our day that it doesn't shock us. So in verse 25, we see that Eli confronts his sons. He says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So, so long story short, he just says, if you, meet, if you mistreat other people, God has provided certain sacrifices to atone for those sins. The, the sacrificial system was there for such occasion but you're showing contempt for the sacrifices themselves by treating them like a joke. Like you're saying your, your sin's not that big a deal, that those people's sins are not that big of a deal, so you're taking justice into your own hands and you're showing no regard for God's holiness. And then the back end of verse 25 is a little sobering, isn't it? I mean, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death? Like I'm going, oh, that kind of makes me a little nervous even right now, my heart rate's, yeah, it's probably pretty high. Dale Ralph Davis says, it's easy to read it too hastily, as if it said that Hophni and Phinehas did not listen to Eli, and consequently, Yahweh decided to put them to death. But the text does not say that. It says Eli's sons did not listen to him, for Yahweh had decided to put them to death. Hophni and Phinehas' resistance was not the rationale for Yahweh's judgment, but the result of his judgment. All right, so let's just chat for a minute. All right, I can see it on your faces. Immediately, I know where you're at. You're like, well, that's not fair. 
And immediately a bunch of you are trying to, to, to rationalize. And here we go. Well, what about free will, Byron? What about free will? What about it? You're taking free will away from me. No, I'm not. This text by no means eliminates free will. It doesn't. Like, like there's this tension in the Bible, and I've said this for years, that you have got to get comfortable with. There's a tension between God's sovereignty over all things and man's responsibility. It's like a telephone pole, man. Those two wires got to keep that pole straight. And if you lean too far to one way, you're going to be in trouble. If you go so far over here to God's sovereignty, you're going to be just a mean, cruel Calvinist who doesn't care about anybody. But if you go too far this way, then you're just going to be wide open, hunky-dory, antinomian, like, hey, God doesn't care, it doesn't matter, he loves us all. we've, We've got to stay in the middle. Remember the book of Exodus. What did it say? God hardened Pharaoh's heart. How many times does it say it? Nine. But then also it says nine times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. See the balance? Kevin DeYoung tells us it was a divine hardening according to a rotten will, not in opposition to a humble disposition. It's the exact same thing here. It's not like Eli's sons were asking God to forgive them. It's not like they were sending the servant in there and then after they ate the meat going, oh God, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't have done that and then they quit doing it. Now, maybe the first couple of times they felt bad about it and maybe they took a couple weeks off before they went back to doing it again but eventually they just kept doing it. There was no repentance, there was no turning from their sin. So it wasn't like they were going, oh God, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't be doing this and God's in heaven going, no soup for you, man. Right, like I'm not gonna forgive you. I am not gonna grant uh, 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 salvation to you. That's not the case, all right? So on one level, they sealed their own fate. On another level, God had already decided their fate. It's both. It's both. Philosopher Alvin Plantiga puts it this way. He says, sow a thought, reap a deed. Sow a deed, reap another deed. Sow some deeds, reap a habit. Sow some habits, reap a character. Sow a character, reap two thoughts. The new thoughts then pursue careers of their own. So we make our decisions, but then listen to me, eventually our decisions make us. In the beginning we have a choice, but eventually we have a character, and when we have a character, usually it's too late. C.S. Lewis essentially said this, He said it wasn't a question of God sending us to hell, but there's something growing up in each of us which will be hell unless we nip it in the bud. That's what the point is. So I'm gonna give you a great example that we can all relate to. Negativity. About to build an elevator, gotta bring this in. All right, negativity, ready? And listen, I'm speaking to myself. I'm the chief complainer. I am very um, negative. And I say it's realism, but it's not, I'm negative. So so listen, small town folks, listen. With every decision we make to complain, criticize, play the victim and focus on the negative and so on, we become more and more the kind of person who is by nature negative, grouchy, unhappy, and unpleasant to be around until eventually we lose the capacity to live happily, gratefully, and full of wonder at our lives in the world. You've done it, I've done it. I mean, how many times do we see something and, and we go, oh man, I should really look at this in a better light. I should really be positive. And instead we just go, oh my gosh, I can't believe. And the next thing you know, we're negative. And the reason is, is that we've spent so many years being negative that we've sowed a character. And once we've sowed a character, it's very hard to come away from that. Romans chapter one would put it this way. In chapter one, verse 28, 
Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. See, there comes a point for all of us that if we don't nip our sin in the bud, listen to me, God will eventually give you what you want. It's Hophni and Phineas, wasn't it? They may have felt bad the first few times that they did those things, but eventually they didn't repent and they kept doing it and eventually it became very, very clear that that's what they wanted all along. And God said, if that's what you want, go get it. And he gives them up to go pursue their sin. Dale Davis tells us, be careful of your response to such teaching. Some of you may become Yahweh's persecutors, alleging he is deficient in mercy. Others may be intellectually curious about the mechanics of hardening. At what precise point is sin's progress, at sin's progress, does it become impossible to repent? And often, when you ask that question, which a lot of you are asking right now, at what point? The reason we're asking that question is because we want to get as close to that line and dance on it as we can. That, that's why we're asking that, that question. See, our job isn't to comprehend It's our job to stand in awe of a God who can make sinners deaf to the call of repentance. So listen to me. I'm not taking away your free will. If you've got sin in your life that you know it's a sin, nip it in the bud today. Repent of it. Turn away from it. Because there may come a point where you keep walking in it. It may become too late. You've sowed a character. And at that point, that's just God giving you what you wanted after the whole time. And that's what happened with Eli's sons, all right? Verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli, and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, uh, subject to the, uh, when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest part of every offering of the people of Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now declares the Lord, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of whom you, uh, the only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them will die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. And shall say, please put me in one of the priest's place that I may eat a morsel of bread so so we get this um we get this man it just says that he he's a man of god we don't know his name we don't know where he comes from but he comes to eli with a word and and he he verbally rebuked his kids eli did eli verbally rebuked his kids but listen he didn't do anything to remove them from their positions 
So in, in one sense, he did the right thing, but, but then he didn't take it far enough. Because listen, there are times, folks, and, you, and you've got to hear me on this, there are times that you should remove a pastor, or in our case, a deacon. There's times it should happen. I mean, if there's areas of, of sexual sin, or there's areas of, of things that we know are blatantly against the scripture, the kind and loving thing to do is to remove a pastor. And the problem that we've gotten into in the Baptist church is that we're so autonomous that we do remove a lot of pastors, but then we don't say anything about it, and then they go to the next church, and they abuse in the next church, and the next church, and the next church, because we don't want a scandal. But there are times to remove them. There are times when they begin spouting heresy, and they drift away from the word of God, and they begin to teach man-made doctrines that it may be time to remove a pastor. And, and Eli didn't do that. Eli just said, hey, boys, what you're doing is wrong. Quit it. And that was it. And so the man of God comes and, and he reminds Eli of God's grace in verses 27 and 28. He said, hey, remember, God brought you out of Egypt. He rescued you. You didn't do that. He did that. He saved you. He brought you out. He chose your family. You didn't raise your hand and ask for this. All right, I mean, remember your granddad, Aaron. Remember him? Yeah, yeah, he was the one who made the cow. And all these people were worshiping it. And God was gracious and didn't kill him. And he chose him to be a priest. So he chose you. You didn't ask for that job. Eli was probably Aaron's grandson from his fourth son. So he's reminding him of all of that. He said, hey, he gave you the privilege of serving before me. So, so remember, the priesthood was no small job. I mean, it was actually a job that should have struck fear into your heart if you had to do it. You had an ephod that you would wear, and on the ephod were the names of the children of Israel. And it was your job to go into the most holy of places where God's presence dwelt, stand before a holy God, and offer sacrifices and say, hey, I am standing in between God and the people. I'm the mediator between a holy God and a sinful people. Father, remember your mercy. Remember your grace. Don't kill these people. I'm here advocating for them. That was their job, was to offer sacrifices for the people. They were the representative of the people. And this prophet's like, hey man, God has shown you this much grace, but what have you done? You've scorned or you've kicked the sacrifices. You've shown contempt for the ways and the means that God has provided in order to have sins forgiven. And so instead of removing your sons from the priesthood, you've chosen your sons over me. Ooh. Don't be that parent, okay? I won't go much deeper into that one, but how many times do, do we just overlook our, our kids' sins? We're like, man, I know what my kid's doing, but it's all right, it's fine. We're not gonna, we're not gonna address it. We're just gonna leave it alone. We're just gonna leave it alone. I mean, I know they're looking at porn, but I'm not gonna say anything about it. We're just gonna leave it alone. It happens all the time. Don't, don't be that parent. And the man of God says, therefore, because you've done all of that and you've failed to honor me, I'm gonna cut your family off. There's not gonna be an old man left there's gonna be one person left in your family and he'll be left to weep and to grieve his descendants. He's gonna grieve all that they lost. And know very soon, Eli, this is gonna happen because on the same day, both of your boys will die. When we get to the book of 1 Kings, we read of a surviving descendant of Eli by the name of Abathar. And as Solomon takes the throne, his very first act is to remove Abathar. 1 Kings 2.27, so Solomon expelled Abathar from being priest to the Lord thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. We'll learn a little bit more about Abathar later, but he's going to be the last remaining relative of Eli. So God makes good on his word. God does exactly what he says he's gonna do. So, welcome to church. I mean, what do you do with this passage? I texted Jay this week and I was like, dude, it's real chipper, it's real happy, man. Find some songs, good luck. 
Like there's so many takeaways that we, that we could do. Like we could go God's sovereignty in our sin. Right? We can say honor God, knowing that God will honor you, which is true. We can take our, our parenting principles. Don't be like Eli. Right? Don't give your kids free reign to sin. We can talk about all those things. And listen to me, all those things would be right. All those things would be good. And I think we should pay close attention to all those things. But I've said this every week. If that's all we said today, then we would leave here with more principles. You leave here with more lists of things to do, right? Don't be Hophni and Phineas. Don't be Eli. Honor God. Do this. Do that. List uh, things that, to try to earn our salvation. But, but I don't think that's what God wants us to do. So as we read this today, I don't know, did, did anybody notice anything odd? Anybody pick up on it? I, I mean, I didn't pick up on it when I was studying it. I just was want to see if anybody could look at me and go, yeah, I saw it. Because if, if you didn't pay attention, we, there's just something in there that was kind of overlooked in all the mess of Eli's family. Go back and look at verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Verse 18, what does it say? Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Verse 21 and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Verse 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also man. And then look at the very first line of chapter three. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord. Amid the mess that's going on, do you see the glimmers of hope that God's giving his people? Right, we get these little bitty tiny brief notes in there and it's intentional. Like he kind of glossed over it. The writer didn't really want you to see it, but it's there. It's as if God is at work providing new godly leadership for his people. Like there's no marketing campaign. There's no political signs, no speeches. It's all very, very quiet. You know, the thing about growth in the Christian life is, is that it seldom makes noise. Usually the person talking the most about their growth is a person that's not growing at all. It's very quiet. It's very subtle. See, Eli's sons are dominating this scene. And there's so many of these people who had been robbed of their offering. They had to be thinking, where's the hope? But in the middle of the chaos, it's like God's whispering like, hey, 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 don't forget about Samuel. You see how he's serving? See how he's growing? Pay attention to Samuel. Look what I'm doing. Ralph Davis says that's God's way quietly providing for the next moment, even in the middle of the darkest moments. Ooh, that's good. Like, like we think when we get in a difficult situation, well, how am I gonna do it? How am I gonna take the next step? And it was like a guy told me after we got our diagnosis with Lucy, he goes, I, I can't explain it to you, but listen, God always provides. And then suddenly, before you know it, you take that next step and it's just a new normal. It's just somehow, some way, he's, he's there to give you the strength and, and to walk with you through those moments. And that's what's happening right here. God's work um, is, is not, not, not noisy. It's not dramatic. And there's times that we can be thinking, man, God's abandoned us. And that's just because we don't have ears to hear the silent manner of God's work. Listen, for you and I living in the 21st century, during this time of just total moral decline, and really just the difficulty of everyday life, whether you're in this century or, or another, we may, be tending, we may tend to think that, that God's absent. And you've all asked that question, God, where are you at in my life? Where are you at in this mess? Where are you at in just everything that's going on around us? But listen, he's not. He's working in a thousand ways that you and I will never see. 
And here's the good news for us as New Testament Christians on this side of the cross. We have something greater than Samuel. We have the one who Samuel points to, right? Look at verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in both stature and favor with the Lord and also with man. All of a sudden you fast forward and you come to the book of Luke in chapter two, verse 52, what does it say? And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. It's verbatim. See, Jesus is the better Samuel. But the man of God tells us in verse 35 that he's gonna raise up a faithful priest, one who will stand in his presence forever. Well, it's not Samuel, because we're gonna see that Samuel's gonna function more as a prophet. It could be Zadok that we read about in 1 Kings chapter two, but that's not who we're talking about. See, we're being pointed further down the road to the greater priest, to one who will faithfully stand before God and plead our case, a priest who is perfect, a priest who will never let us down, a priest who will walk through life with us. What does the book of Hebrews say? Chapter seven, verse 26 through 27. Jay read it earlier. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered himself up. Jesus is holy, Jesus is blameless, Jesus is pure, Jesus is set apart from sinners, but Jesus doesn't take from us as Eli's sons did. Instead, Jesus offered himself for us. And so since we now have that priest who lives to intercede for us, we have an advocate. First John chapter two. And this to me, regardless of what a lot of these real fancy preachers like to tell you today, first John was written to Christians, not non-Christians. So John's writing to them and he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But listen, if anyone does sin, you have an advocate, you have a priest, you have a perfect man standing in front of the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so now that we know that Jesus is our advocate, you don't have to hide your sin. You don't have to deny your sin. You can be like, oh yeah, that was me, I did it. Yeah, totally, yeah, I'm an idiot. You don't have to walk in your sin like Eli's sons did. Instead, we can bring our sin out of the darkness. We can bring it into the light, and we can know, as John tells us in chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, we have a priest standing before God, and because of him, you're cleansed and you're forgiven. Because we have a priest who stands before God to intercede for us, confession then leads to forgiveness, and forgiveness then leads to freedom. We don't have to be shackled and bound down. We don't have to sow and reap characters that we can't come out of. Instead, we can walk in freedom. And listen, although earthly pastors may let you down, amen, right? And if I haven't yet, just wait till we get done with this building project. I guarantee you I'm going to. Jesus will never let us down. He promises to never leave us or forsake us and he promises that he will stand and plead our case before the Father forever. So if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm gonna ask if our ushers would go ahead and come forward. And so this morning, we're, we're going to, to go to the Lord's table. Then we're gonna go have a peace offering to remind ourselves that there is peace between us and God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so as I do every time we come to this offering, I'm gonna tell you this, is that if you're a guest with us this morning and you're a believer, come to the table, by all means, come to the table. If you're in here and you do not know Jesus, we're just gonna ask that you sit this one out. Uh, we're not trying to be rude. Nobody's gonna look down on you and make fun of you, but the Bible's clear, this is for the family. And so this is for believers. 
And then for us as, as, as believers, the Bible also tells us not to, to partake of this cup in an unholy manner. So what I'm going to ask you to do is here in a moment as, as the band leads us, I'm just going to ask you right there where you're at to, to confess any sin that needs to be confessed. Maybe just to need to remind yourself of the goodness of Jesus. And that although your life seems chaotic, maybe you just need a reminder that he hasn't gone anywhere. That even in the mess, he's working in all the silent ways that we can't see. And then after you've done that, I'm going to ask that you sing with us. It's going to kind of be a different song for the Lord's Supper, but that's okay. And I'm just going to ask that you would sing with all your heart that, hey, you're good, you're good, and that, Father, you will never let us down. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've given us. I thank you that this story that seems so bleak and hopeless actually is so full of hope. As just in the quiet way that you do, you're whispering to us, hey, no, 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 look at Samuel. Look, like I haven't forgotten the plot. Like I'm, I'm still involved, I'm still working, I'm still moving. And so I pray that today as believers, no matter what we've come in here with, we would remember that. Father, you have not forgotten us. In fact, your word tells us that you stand in and you advocate for us, you intercede for us on a daily basis that Jesus, you are the better priest Instead of taking from us, you gave of yourself for us. And so I pray that if somebody doesn't know you today, that, that as that gospel message was preached, that you have saved them and changed them, and that today they would lift the cup and the bread and for the first time come to the table as believers, knowing that peace has been made between them and God. For the rest of us, may we remind ourselves that it's not about what we do, but it's about what Jesus has done, and that our standing before the Father has nothing to do with our merit, but everything to do with Jesus. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.